0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr Paul Shepard from the Department of Architecture and Civil Engineering will share the secrets behind the building of the Olympic Park and explore the ways in which mathematics was used in the construction and the operation of the Olympic Games. I'd just like to um, give a quick overview. I'm going to talk about the Olympics as a means to convince you that it wouldn't for without maths, we wouldn't be able to build such elegant structures such as these. Um, and behind me, uh, and the other thing is, because it's being recorded audio, I might kind of describe what's on the slides, and I don't normally do that, but um, so that the people at home can understand what we're talking about. So these are showing some of the fabulous venues that were built especially for the Olympics, and my talk today is going to concentrate on this. One here, the the main Olympic stadium. So hopefully, by the end of today, you'll all be absolutely convinced that without mathematics, these things wouldn't be able to exist. The question of how to build an Olympic stadium was answered when London won the Olympics bid. Uh, It was answered by the media people who said, this was how you do it. You... um, Magically get 80,000 seats to whiz across London and arrange themselves in little circles. You magically get a big steel ring to drop itself into position. I mean, if only life were that easy, um, then certainly the job of an engineer would be much more simple. And of course, that's not the reality. Someone has to think about how that's put together. Someone has to plan and predict how it's going to behave and then actually realise it as a large structure. So it's quite difficult to uh, to get across how big this stadium is. This uh, shows a slice through the stadium and you can see that there's the steel ring around the roof. You can see where the seats are and there's all this kind of training and exhibition facilities down below that the public don't normally get to see. <coughs> to try and show you the size I would just like you to concentrate on this A-shaped triangle on the top now as you all know now that is the floodlights for the stadium that's where that just that little triangle on the top is full of lights which shines down when it's dark so that we can still see what's going on and I know I'm not the world's tallest person but uh, that's me down there next to just that little triangle when I visited the site back in 2009 So just to try and give you an idea of the scale, this thing's huge. And in in fact, these lights, there's more lights there than you would normally expect to see on a stadium because we plan for the future. This stadium's got to do we don't know what for we don't know how long. So um, the way that high-definition television, the high-definition technology is progressing very quickly, and when we have high-definition TV, we need more light on the objects of interest so that we can see them properly. And so there's way more lights on this stadium than you would see on one design five or ten years ago because of the technology we have to build for tomorrow's technology when we put these large venues together. Now it's difficult for me to explain something so complex, so I'm going to use a mathematician's trick. I'm going to take a complicated thing and break it down into a, a simple part. So I just want to explain this complicated stadium, and I want to explain the structure, how the structure is put together. And I'm going to do that by looking at one little piece of that steel ring. So the question that an engineer would be given is to design that, to make it strong enough, such that it can do its job. So whatever we throw at it, be it hurricanes, rain, wind, snow this thing has to be strong enough to do its job. And it's quite a complicated shape and it's difficult to imagine how we might understand how it would work. And in the past, people have used scale models and they've built scale models and poked them and pulled them and understood how they work. And nowadays we have computers to do the same thing. So we take that complicated shape And we want to do some maths on it, we want to do physics, we want to understand how it's going to work. And we do that, again, by the same trick. We split it into lots of little small rectangles, and we apply a very simple equation to each rectangle. So if any of you have um, come across this in, in physics, the Young's modulus, which represents the stiffness of a structure, is related to the stress and the strain. It's a simple equation And we can apply that simple equation to a simple shape, like a rectangle, quite easily. And when we've done that, we rely on the computer to take those behaviours and put them all together. So instead of just understanding how a small rectangle works, we understand how the whole thing works. I wish that hadn't. That's my alarm in my bag. (laughs) Okay. Um, So... We can understand how it works by doing simple maths on a simple shape and putting all the results together. Now, we can then understand how it will move, and we can understand the stresses and strains. And we can put all that together and decide how big this thing has to be, what material it has to be made out of, how it's connected together. And then we get an understanding that we can put it together on site. We can build it and make it real and lift it into place. And I think I left the music on this one. Sorry. I meant to cut this music, but there we go. It's, um, you build it in place. You lift it into place. You join it to the other piece. There you go. That's the second one. And uh, then you have to do the third one and the fourth one and the fifth one and you go all the way around until you get back to where you started from. And, of course, you have to be very careful about the tolerances. Sorry. I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> can someone just, like, throw that in a bin? <laughs> Take the phone out of the front pocket and see if you can shut it up. Right. And... Um, so there we go, you get round to where you started from. And this thing, I mean, this thing's huge. I, I tried to give you an idea of that before. It's actually 860 meters all the way around. And uh, it's not actually an ellipse, it's kind of elliptical. But to design it as an ellipse would be very difficult because it's, it would, um, well, let's say, in order to make it simpler, it's approximated into bits of a circle. You can see each bit of a circle there goes together. There's, uh, there's bits of a circle and they join. And what that allows is repetition. So the engineer can design one segment and copy it round. You get a repetition within a circle. So we can design a slice in the red piece and then copy the design round do a slice of the blue, and copy the design round. And that allows repetition, it simplifies the design, it means the people who make, for example, the seats, can just make one mould and repeat the mould around. But it approximates an ellipse. So when we put all these bits of roof round and round and get back to where we started, it's quite important that you can slot the last piece in, there's enough room to fit it. And and that's more complicated than you think, because as you may be aware, everything, all the materials around us, um, they change. When, when they get hotter, they thermally expand, or when they get colder, they shrink, generally. And because this is so, so big, there can be up to a half a metre difference in the size of this roof, depending on a hot day or a cold day, just through that thermal expansion. So, the engineers have to take that into account. They have to think about all the things that will happen to this. And they've, in fact, I think the next picture shows them slotting that last piece in. They actually pulled the entire roof apart with some huge jacks, slotted that last piece in, and then let it close up. So, it's really tightly held together, uh, and it's doing its job. But they have to, you know, the difference between a hot day and a cold day is significant in this kind of size of structure. This was an artist's impression of what it would look like when it was finished. Now, we've all since seen it. I didn't do a show of hands when I started. Hands up if you actually went to the Olympic Stadium. So, in a room of about uh, a thousand, <laughs> there's five. Okay. Uh, hands up if you watched it on TV. Yes. Fabulous. So, you've seen what it looked like. Um, this was an artist's impression. It's where all the f- track and field events were going to be held. So I'd just like to lo- take a look, not at a London Olympic track and field event, but a, a, at a, track, a field event um, from Oslo in, I believe, nine, uh, 2007. It's the javelin throw, and we'll play a little game of question of sport, what happened next. So I'll freeze the clip and we'll see what happens next. So there he goes, running up, and he throws his javelin. It goes quite high into the air, so I freeze it there. Anyone want to hazard a guess at what happened next? Oh, one at a time, one at a time. I know there's thousands of you in the room, but... Yeah, we've got an option there. Take your hand up. What do you think? Well, it's mine. The javelin might hit someone. It might hit someone. Right, we'll see whether that happens later on. Good idea. Any more? Yours, hands are up, yeah. Kills an athlete running around the track. Kills an athlete running around the track, any more? Blown out of the stadium. Blown out of the stadium. Excellent. One more. Gets lodged in the seating somewhere. Lodged in the seats. Right, well I'll play the clip. We'll find out who is right. And how are we gonna do this? Is anyone a bit squeamish? I don't know. What I've done is I've stopped the clip just before the end. So if anyone's squeamish, you don't have to worry. But that kind of spoils the fun for everyone who's not squeamish. Um, So without giving the game away too much, if you go into Google and type man hit with javelin, you'll find the clip and you can watch the whole. So here's a clip. This time I've put the commentary on. So as we watch what happens, listen to the commentary. Even in non-contact sports, injuries can strike, sometimes in totally unexpected ways. It's a massive throw, swept along by a freak gust of wind. The javelin spears one of the officials, missing his heart by inches. There we go. Now, we don't have to worry. He was fine. Well, we no, he wasn't fine, of course. He got a javelin in his chest. But um, they took him to hospital, then he was fine. Um, he didn't die. Did he get his javelin? Well, (laughs) we'll come on to that, because did you hear the commentary? It said it was swept along by a freak gust of wind. So you were quite right that it hit someone, but you were also right that it could have been blown out of the stadium. It was swept along by the wind. Now, can anyone else think of any other Olympic events that might be affected by the wind? The running? Good answer. Any more? High jump. High jump. Sailing, genius, yes. I always keep going until someone says sailing and then we stop. So, yes, sailing could be affected by the wind as well. Uh, But the high jumps, the running, absolutely right. Although, interestingly, there's only an Olympic regulation about these sports. So, on the the running, we've got the 100 and the 200 metres. Those are the short sprints. And that's... And the short hurdles and the long triple jump. So... The reason for that is that they can only really measure the wind speed down at ground level and they measure it halfway down the running track. And if the wind is helping you to do your sprint, then you'll still get your gold medal for coming first. But if the wind is faster than 2 metres per second, then it won't count as a world record because you've been wind-assisted the longer runs involve a complete circuit of the track so half the time it'll help you along and the other time you'll be battling into the wind and it'll cancel out so it's the short jumps, the short uh, runs um, and you'll notice that the javelin wasn't on that list so if he hadn't speared the official it would have counted as a good throw even though it was held by the wind And that's because there's not a very good correlation between the wind at ground level and the wind at height. So even though it might be windy up the top to help his throw, we can't really measure it down below. What we don't want, therefore, is lots of world records to be disallowed because it was too windy inside the stadium. And that, therefore, becomes the problem of the engineer to make sure that the stadium is designed to take that into account. We've got mathematical models similar to the finite element analysis of splitting into rectangles. We can split the entire stadium into lots of little cubes, and we can understand how the wind will behave in each cube, and then put all the results together to get an overall view of how the wind would affect the stadium. And this is a computer picture of the wind around the Olympic Stadium, we don't want people blowing off their feet outside, and we don't want all the world records inside to be disallowed. So in this case, we've used maths to predict how windy it will be inside a stadium we haven't built yet. That's kind of cool, I think. Now I can hear you all thinking, yeah, but how do you know you're right? It's quite important if you're going to build a huge stadium to get this right. So although we can use mathematical models to predict behaviour, we generally need some evidence to show us that it's going to be correct. So in this case, they did uh, wind tunnel tests. This is a scale model of the Olympic Stadium in a wind tunnel. And you can see all these little white dots. They're all pressure measurement devices. And the whole thing, it's a video, so we can hear the wind rushing down the room. They inject a little bit of smoke so that we can see the the way the wind is behaving, but they're measuring the pressure at each of these points. Now, it costs in the order of £10,000 to do a wind tunnel test like this, so you don't want to be doing them every day. And therefore, what happens is, I think they did about five different scenarios in the wind tunnel. You do a few wind tunnel tests, and you check those results against the results from the computer. And when they match, it gives you confidence that your computer results are correct, and then you can do dozens, hundreds of computer analyses trying different scenarios, but you've got this constant benchmark test that says that you've got confidence in the results. So we've seen how the wind can affect what goes on inside the stadium. Now let's take a look at how the wind can affect the structure itself. To do that, I've got this video. It's the most famous example of wind affecting a structure. It's the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in the US in 1940. It wasn't a particularly windy day but the entire bridge started to move it interacted with the wind and of course structures aren't built to take that kind of punishment and it, it completely, it very quickly collapsed um, taking the car with it. So there we've got wind interacting with the structure. And the wind isn't the only thing that can interact with a structure like that. An engineer's job would be so much easier if we just built the structures and then left them and they stood there forever and that was it. Unfortunately, people tend to come along and people can get the structures moving as well. When we're talking of bridges, the wobbly bridge over the Thames is the obvious example. Today we're talking about stadiums. So I've got a little video of a stadium. This is Nuremberg Stadium in Germany and they're celebrating a goal and singing their club song La La. So I won't ask you to sing it along but here we go Now you can see straight away that as they're bouncing up and down on their stadium the whole stadium is moving quite seriously and from an engineering standpoint I wouldn't necessarily be too worried about that It's moving, yeah, but it's within the kind of area of safety that an engineer would be comfortable with. But that's not to say it's not a dangerous scenario. You've got the people on the top level having a great time singing a song, jumping up and down. I'd hazard a guess that some of these people down below, maybe some of them aren't structural engineers. And maybe they're all they can see is the roof bouncing up and down like that, and they're thinking, well, I'd better get out of here. And that's where it becomes a dangerous scenario, because if we get crowd panicking, they all try and get out at once we've got crowd crushing, and we don't need to think very hard to think about how dangerous that could be. So it's still a dangerous scenario, even if the structure itself isn't in danger of collapsing. Okay, now this is not necessarily a... Um, A new phenomena. Back in 1922, they built the new Wembley Stadium in London. And they were using a new material called reinforced concrete. Now these days we take it for granted, it's all around us. And in that time, it was a relatively new material. They weren't that confident about it. And they didn't have fantastic computer analyses to be able to simulate its behaviour. What they did have is access to thousands of construction workers in flat caps and safety boots. And they got them to all stand up at the same time, all sit down at the same time, stamp their feet. They're testing the stadium after they've built it, swaying from side to side, seeing if they can get it to move. So you can see that even back then they needed confidence in their calculations for this new material. They didn't have the predictive power of computers, so they had to get loads of guys in flat caps to jump up and down on it. And that means that if they'd found a problem, it would have then been quite expensive to fix it. Now we have computers, we can do that beforehand. And in fact, this is still a live piece of research. And a couple of years ago in the University of Bath, just across the campus there, a colleague, Gillian Browning, did her PhD investigating the movement of stadium and grandstands. And she built a replica. She actually, what's the word, borrowed, no, Uh, acquired some of the old seats from the old Wembley when they destroyed it and put them in the lab on this equipment. And it's a video. She asked some volunteers, there's me in the middle, jumping up and down. And we've got these computers, we've got a handle on how the structure behaves. The open question is how the people behave. They're much more difficult to model mathematically. And so she was asking people to jump up and down and other people to fill in questionnaires saying how scared they were that it was bouncing up and down. Because there's still this unknown about the people's reaction as opposed to the structure. So it's it's still an important area of research. Now the FC Nuremberg people weren't happy about their stadium bouncing up and down and they commissioned their research project to see if they could deal with the problem. They got 50 student volunteers to come in and jump up and down on it and they covered it with uh, accelerometers to measure the movement of the grandstand. So here they are, 50 student volunteers jumping up and down. And at this point, the camera zooms in on the handrail to see it against the background of the running track to see if it's moving. And surprisingly, it doesn't look like it's moving that much. It's hardly moving at all. And the reason for that is a phenomenon called resonance. Uh, The best way I've got to explain that is... uh, Well, everything around us has a frequency at which it wants to naturally vibrate. So we can take a guitar string and pluck it, and it will vibrate at a certain frequency. If I brought my ruler, I could twang it on the desk and do the same thing. Everything has a natural frequency, a frequency at which it wants to vibrate. And the grandstand there is no exception. Now, if you, let's say we're, we're in a park with our friend on a swing. If you push your friend at the same frequency, the natural frequency of that swing, then the swing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and maybe you can get them right around the top. If you push them at a different frequency, say you go too fast, then half the time they're not even there when you push, and the other time maybe they're coming towards you when you push and you actually slow them down. There's not that synchronisation. It's only when your push matches their swing, all your energy goes into their swing, and the response builds and builds and gets very large. And the same thing can happen with structures. The Nuremberg Stadium people measured the natural frequency of their grandstand, and then they repeated the same experiment. But this time, instead of music, they got a metronome, and they set the metronome at the exact same frequency of the structure. And they were a bit chicken, so they just got half as many people to jump on it this time. There we go. And you can immediately see it's bouncing against the background. And... The only difference is that the frequency now matches that of the structure. And we don't even need to imagine what it would be like if it was full, because we've kind of seen it with the, with the fans celebrating now. So there's a huge difference just because the frequency matches. So what we can do is we can, we can think about when we design a stadium, we have to think about the frequency at which that will happen. And the the British research establishment did a survey of all the premiership football grounds in the UK. And they measured their frequency. And they all wanted to remain anonymous, so they've all got a letter down the bottom. So I can't (laughs) tell you which ones to avoid or not. But you can see there's quite a range there of frequencies. And we can actually control that. When we design a stadium, we can control that frequency there's a mathematical relationship between the stiffness of the structure and its mass that links to the frequency. So by making it stiffer or lighter, we can increase the frequency of a stadium. So that's great. We can control the stadium. The problem is the people. We can't necessarily control the people. The same BRE research establishment did it a survey of the types of music played at pop concerts in stadiums around the country. And what they found is, have we got any um, Belgian techno fans in today? (laughs) No? No one volunteering for that? Okay. Well, they found that Belgian techno is the fastest kind of music that people would try and dance at in a pop concert see if I can convert some of you. Here we go. No? No takers? That's encephaloid disturbance by magnetic neuroses. So you can all, you can all go home and download that one to your iPods. Um, Belgian techno, fastest music. It's got a frequency of 2.8 hertz, 170 beats per minute. So 2.8 times a second, Belgian techno is pumping away. That's the fastest thing that people are likely to be dancing at. Which means that when we design structures like this, we take 2.8, round it up to 3 to make life easy for ourselves, because we are engineers, and then we double it to 6. And 6 hertz is the limit for designing new stadiums and the idea is that all new stadiums will have a frequency of 6 or more. You can see that some of these stadiums have got lower frequencies than 6. Some of them will be old stadiums. Some may have been demolished by now or changed or upgraded. Uh, Some of them, I think Cardiff Millennium Stadium had a problem with a pop concert in New Millennium Eve night, whatever it was called, Um, and they had to put some kind of props in the stadium. So if you've ever gone to a sports match, the props are swung away into the roof and you just watch the game. If you go for a pop concert, they swing these props down to stiffen up the structure to increase its frequency such that it won't start bouncing with the music. Using that equation of stiffness and mass... We can therefore tune the Olympic Stadium. This is a slice through the Olympic Stadium seating, and we can use the computer to predict that that will be above 6 hertz. So we won't have a problem with the people and the structure interacting. Now that brings me on to my little strange demonstration here down the front. And, well... I haven't had great success with this, but we'll see how we go. This is a fantastic piece of kit which was built for me by a a madcap inventor, shall we say, Richard Ellum, who built me this shaking table. I've got a microphone here, and it listens to the noise in the room, and when it hears a noise, it shakes the table. So you can see on the screen the voice imprint of the noise in the room. And when I turn it on, it will. every time it hears a clap, it will shake the table. What I would like to demonstrate to you is how we can clap slowly, shake the table slowly, and the tower won't fall down because it's not at its resonant frequency. Then we'll repeat the experiment and we'll clap very quickly and it will shake quickly but it still won't fall down because it's not at its resonant frequency. And then we'll aim for about 2 hertz which is the resonant frequency of the tower and we'll see if we can get it to collapse. And in fact someone said to me earlier that they hated that Olympic mascot thing with one eye so <laughs> Wenlock here will take a... Uh, dangerous journey into the unknown. We'll stick him on top of the tower and see if we can kill him at two hertz. Now, in order to do this, we have to have a little house rule because, as you can see from the screen, this thing picks up all the noise in the room. And we don't want it to fall down too early because people are laughing and joking. So the rule is that we don't talk and i 'm going to be cheerleader and try and get you all clapping, but when I do this to try and get you all to stop, you have to stop straight away because it might if you keep going it 'll fall down. so if I do that, stop straight away. If someone claps after i 've done that you 've got my permission to jab them in if they you know just give them a kick. Um, so we 'll give it a go now i 'll put one little clarification on this that given that there are a thousand people in the room when i say clap if unless you're all perfectly in time with each other it'll sound like a thousand claps and not one and that sends this thing crazy so we'll try and keep together but what i think we'll do is at the end to get it to go i might ask for a volunteer and one person can usually get it better timed than a thousand but we'll see how we get on do you want to practice You're all looking a bit scared. It's me that it falls down on if it goes wrong. Poor old Wenlock as well. Right, so we'll try for one hertz, and I'll be the cheerleader, and you can all clap. And don't forget, when I do that, everyone stops. Right, here we go. You see, that is the first time that it's gone on one hearse. Right, given that we're recording this, we all just pretend that, that <laughs> I, can, I can edit it down. We can go, right, yeah, that would really work well. So the idea is it doesn't fall down and then we do it fast and it doesn't fall down and then we do it just right. It takes hours to build that table at the tower again. <laughs> If anyone hasn't got to rush off at the end, then we'll build it again and give it a go. Uh, But take it from me, it kind of works sometimes. I've never had it disastrously like that. Right. So here we go. Um, Back to the other one. The idea is, therefore, that I've been trying to show you that... Maths can be used to predict behaviour. And it's the engineer's job, therefore, to apply that mathematics to understand the structure, understand what it might have to do in its, lifesta- in its lifetime, in a way predict the life of the building, and then use the maths to predict how it will react. We've seen how we can predict the structure itself, make sure it's strong enough to do its job, We can predict things like how it will move when it gets wind on it or people on it. We can predict how the wind will be inside it even. It's all about understanding what might happen and then applying the mathematics to make sure that the design will work. And that has to be done before You've committed to building this entire stadium because it's difficult, as the Cardiff Millennium Stadium people found, to do it afterwards. Perhaps maths couldn't have predicted who would have won the medals. Some of the bookmakers may say otherwise. And certainly some events would have been easier to predict than others. This is the final of the 800-metre 800 800 heptathlon with Jessica Ennis. By this time, we kind of knew she was going to, to, win, the to win the heptathlon, but she still did win us win proud win and came first across the line. Magnificent performance. And Jessica was the nation's Olympic champion. Maybe she still is. Well, here are mine. ...the Olympic torch is about to enter the stadium. Witnessed by an honour guard of 500 of the men and women... ...who built the Olympic Park. There you go, there's Mike there. Mike, you see him? Um, Construction workers, they're not construction workers. They're mathematicians. They're engineers, physicists. Those are the team that worked so hard to bring a top-quality Olympic Stadium to London. You've been a top-quality audience, despite my little problems with the Tower. Uh, so thanks very much for listening. I'd just like to finish with this picture here. This is, this is my friend Andy. I worked with Andy on Arsenal Stadium for years, and we were lucky enough to go to the first game in the new stadium, the Emirates Stadium for Arsenal. We all went down there to see what we'd all been working on for years. And Andy begged me to take this picture. He's only had a little bit of beer, but he was so proud of this beam. That's Andy's beam. Next time you go and watch Arsenal play, you can see Andy's beam. More interesting than what goes on on the pitch. (laughs) That photo, for me, just shows what it's like to be an engineer. You just get such a feeling of satisfaction when you've worked on something, you've understood it, you've seen it on the screen, you've seen the mathematical calculations, and you finally get to be able to go and see how big these things, and see the people enjoying them. And that's really what makes it all worthwhile. So next time you go and watch a sports event... You know, you might be watching what's going on on the pitch or jumping up and down and singing songs, but think about the structure. Look at the roof for five minutes. Think about people like Andy that have worked hard to make it a reality. I'm happy to take questions, but uh, if you've enjoyed the talk, I'd appreciate a two hertz round of applause. <laughs>